0: Welcome. Glad you've joined us online if that's where you are. We miss you. Good to see you in a sense. Good to be seen. People keep saying, we're seeing you every week, which is encouraging. Glad you've joined us today. Welcome. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 in this red Bible. It's page about 45, 46, something like that. It's the second book in the Bible. And there's also sermon notes pages that will be helpful for you to follow along, keep track of what I'm going to try to say. And, um, and then um, if you're new with us, I hope you feel welcomed today. And I hope that you'll consider filling out a guest a form that just helps us to stay connected with you. We'd love to answer questions, love to hear more of your story. Thanks for joining us this morning. May you be challenged and encouraged as we gather together. Today, I want to share the sixth and final sermon series of our Easter series. Today is Ascension Sunday. Today is the end of the Easter series. And the question that we've been looking at over the last six weeks is the question, how do we experience freedom? The sermon sermon series has been called Freedom, we're asking how then, it's a how series, how do we experience freedom? Freedom from what? Well, we're a Christian church, so we're talking about freedom from the ultimate enemy, freedom from death, and, but not just death, but all of death's lesser furies, all of the minions that come along with death. I've had this image in my head of a movie poster, you know, where they have like all the main characters and death is coming on strong, but on his shoulders are all these other sort of subsets of death, <clears throat> others that come along with death, like things like family division like depression and anxiety, like disappoint, deep disappointment, like that paralyzing disappointment. Some of us are still stuck in after years. <clears throat> Things like racism or depression or anxiety. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we celebrate, celebrated six weeks ago. And what being murdered and buried for three days and then rising again demonstrates is that death is not the most powerful force in the universe. Resurrection is the most powerful force in the universe. The way of life has been demonstrated to be far superior than the way of death. That's the truth that Easter proclaims. That's the truth that births the largest and most influential influential religious movement in human history, which is Christianity. And that's the truth that many of you believed and confessed in your baptism. That Jesus is Lord, <clears throat> that he has conquered sin and death, and that Jesus has come to set you free. That's the truth that changes everything. And here's the frustration. Sometimes it fails to change my life on a Tuesday afternoon. It does. Sometimes I struggle to put this, this huge proclamation, this massive like paradigm-shifting truth into practice in a way that actually adjusts my way of thinking early on a Sunday morning. When I tell you, I just do a different kind of level of battle every week. I'm not, I'm, I'm not when I'm not getting along with people I love, That's when I need resurrection to be like a practical. That's when I need to experience this freedom that was accomplished for me by Christ in the resurrection. When work feels just impossible or when fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. Like we don't want to just allow this to be this, this proclamation that we make big on Easter at a lesser degree all throughout the year on Sunday. We want this to be something that we experience. How does the question that we, so the question that we've been working with the last five, five weeks is, how do we experience freedom? And each week I've preached a sermon where I've tried to point out one specific way, one practical way to be free. And I asked you on Easter, this is the question I asked you, can you please identify one thing in your life that threatens to control you? One part of your life from which you would like to experience greater practical freedom And we've been studying the prequel to Easter in order to kind of come in the side door and maybe dislodge some things and see some practical insights into what it is that we're actually celebrating at Easter. We've been studying the prequel to Easter, which is the Exodus. It's the major event of the Old Testament, which pre kind of like foreshadows the major event of the New Testament, which is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the story of a group of people who step out of bondage and into freedom. That's what I'm interested in. I think together where we share a common interest in this. And so here's what I'm wondering as we wrap up the, ser- the sermon series today. Has it worked? Is it working? Like have any of the insights that we've tried to lift up for consideration done any Has it dislodged anything that you've been stuck in maybe for months or years in the past? Are you freer now than you were six weeks ago? That would be my campaign if I were running for election. I would say, are you freer now? Have you experienced any real progress, friends? Have you experienced the loosening of death's grip in any area of your life, I wonder, over the last six weeks? Have you moved away from shame? Have you moved away from fear? Has the pull of the old addiction been weakened at all? Are you freer from anxiety? Are you freer from resentment? I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, is the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, which Paul says is the same power that lives in followers of Christ, is it moving the dial at all for you six weeks after Easter? Is it changing anything? I wonder, were you brave enough, were you intentional enough to actually name something on Easter from which you would like to get more freedom? Did you name something that threatens to control you, that threatens to overshadow you, that is darkening your outlook, your your practical way of living out your faith? And have you put into action any of the ways that we've experienced or that we've identified in order to experience freedom? Has this worked? at all. Like, that's the question. Is it shaking anything loose? Have these been interesting sermons or have they been helpful sermons? That's what, that's, this is the risk and the challenge of a how-to series, right? We have to measure its effectiveness. Have you taken a hold of any of these truths? Have you translated them into action? Can you, can anyone testify to being freer now than you were six weeks ago? I've wrestled with this kind of low-grade edginess all week as I have continued to battle against the derivative of death that I identified in my own life and have been pushing against and have been consistently applying these insights toward because I want to get free from some things. I love to proclaim the resurrection, but more importantly than that is I want to live it Like I want to know the the power of the resurrection, right? And I and I believe that you do too. So let's review the the few ways that we identified that we can experience freedom. And if you haven't earnestly applied these truths, it's not too late. I invite you to consider grabbing a hold of one of these and applying these in your own life. And then I'll move on to one final insight um, to wrap up. First. How do we experience freedom? First, the critical context for freedom is community. Individualism and privacy usually hinder freedom. We need to belong, we need to be known, and we need to be told the truth. The issue I chose to identify from which I need greater freedom is a profoundly personal issue. Therefore, right out of the gate, I was challenged by this basic truth That in order for me to actually get free from something that inherently lives in secrecy, I need to bring it out, right? I need to share it with an appropriate community. So I did with two brothers that I trust. Here's what I'm dealing with. Here's how I need to get free from this or I need to get free from this. And I'm I'm recognizing that by bringing this into community, this is one of the ways I'm going to break the power of this thing over my life. Second, freedom requires a critical conviction. Here's the conviction. You need to believe that God is for you, not neutral, not against you. He's for you. He's cheering for you. He's advocating for you. He's blocking for you. He's pushing you from behind. God wants you to be whole. God wants you to be free, specifically free from death and all of its derivatives. Do you remember the burning barn story? I told this story. turns out it's hard to save a cow from a burning barn if the cow doesn't believe you are for her. (laughs) In a similar way, it is hard to receive freedom from God if you don't believe he's for you. You stay in the corner and you cower and you think you know better than he does. The whole time he's trying to show you the way out because it's a burning barn. And he wants you to be free from it. So hold up your issue. This is what we do. We hold up our issue our struggle, our challenge, and we hold up this conviction. God is for me, right? And you pray in, in light of, when I'm in this, help me to believe this. When I'm in the middle of this, help me to believe that you're for me, even in the, in the part of my life that probably feels the most distant from God. Right? You look at the cross, you read the stories of Jesus helping those who are in need, and you keep reminding yourself every day God is for me, He's for me, God is for me. He wants to free me from death. Third, freedom, real spiritual healing, friends, it requires cooperation. Cooperation, yes, between you and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has set you free. Now you need to do the hard work of mending your broken spirit, not by yourself but with, in cooperation with the Spirit of God. We love stories of instant healing, and some of us have stories of instant healing where we ask, God heals us, and that's wonderful. Most of the time, however, it feels to me, my experience, it seems that healing is a progressive thing. Healing takes time. Makes perfect sense to me. It took a progression of bad decisions and, and brokenness to lead you into bondage, It makes sense that you'd have to kind of gradually untie some knots with the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit along the way to get out of bondage. We're talking about therapy. We're talking about counseling. We're talking about spiritual direction. We're talking about confession and rehab so that you can get out of bondage. Moses declared to the Israelites, the good news that Moses declared was God is setting you free. But they didn't believe him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage and they had to work through this process, right? Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the emancipation proclamation, but it was and it was real, but it was just a proclamation. Lots of work was then required in order to mend broken spirits, and lots of work was and still is required to mend the broken spirits of others so that people can really be free. Fourth, We live in a time and a culture when there's so many resources available to us. I mean, there's just a glut of resources, good resources available to us. And that's good. But the tricky thing here is that there are so many counterfeit liberators. There's just so many counterfeit liberators. What is that? Promises or powers that promise something that they can't can't quite fulfill. So we must say no to these counterfeit liberators, fake saviors, things that May even be good, but are not God. They may even be good things, but they cannot take the place of God. They can't set you free. Most of the time, they're just trying to sell you something. Their power may work for a while, like the Egyptian magicians. They're able to mimic the power of God for the first, the initial sign and then the first two plagues, but then they can't duplicate the gnats. They can't do the gnat thing, and the limit of their power is revealed. The quick and easy way to a whole life is not a shortcut. It's a trap. It's promising something it can't fulfill. So we need to refuse counterfeit liberators. Think again of your issue, of your struggle, of that from which you desire greater freedom. What are the false saviors saying? Can you identify it? Can you think of it? What are the easy solutions around this issue? What is the magic that is claiming to be able to do the same thing God can do, but just with a little bit less sacrifice on your part. Can you, I, can, I can name the false voices offering solutions to my issue. Can you name yours? They're easy. They're everywhere. You can see them. Some of them are good things that will probably help if they point you to God. But if they replace God, you just fell into the trap. We talked about CrossFit. We talked about exercise programs. Good things, but can be elevated to a degree of God. And some of them, friends, they're not good things at all. They're offers of escape. That's all they are. They're they're offers of medicating it away and, and just ignoring the real issue. It's avoidance. You need to refuse it. They will not set you free because they can't set you free. They don't have the power to set you free. It's a false savior. It's a counterfeit liberator. So say no to it. And then finally, last week, we said say yes to distinction. How do you get free? You say yes to distinction. You say yes to being different, to being set apart for God's purpose. There are two ways, not many similar ways. There are two ways. There's the way of life and there's the way of death. And there's a great difference between those two ways. Not only is God's way distinct and different, it's wonderful. It's good. It's good. David says, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And he's reflecting on the distinction into which he's been called by God. Not only is God's way different and distinct, it's good. Ever since grade school, you've been teased for being different. Ever since grade school, worse maybe, you've been rejected for being different. So of course you associate difference with loneliness or difference or distinction with awkwardness. God says that distinction is ultimately about freedom. It's a wonderful thing. May we associate distinction with freedom. How do we experience freedom? You say yes to distinction. You say yes to the way of life. I hope, friends, those are the five ways that we've pointed out. I hope that one of those, at least one of these you've been putting into practice or that you will. I've prayed that these ways to freedom would be helpful for you, that they would work that the message that we proclaimed on Easter six weeks ago would, would be a reality that you continually experience more and more in your daily life, that you would be free. Those are five ways. I'm sure there's, there's a lot more. Um, but those are five answers to the question, how? How do we get free? This has been a series about how. And just in the next few minutes, let me this morning wrap the series up with a final thought, and this will be a response to the question, why? Okay, so this is a why sermon at the end of five how sermons. In, in a few, re- and this is why I, I felt like I needed to do this. In a few recent conversations with people who are doing the hard work of freeing themselves from compulsions and addiction and bad habits and things that are destructive, I've noticed that the real battle isn't about knowing how to get free. The battle that, that for those who are engaged in the process, Often, not always, but often, the real battle is knowing why it's so important that you do get free. Why do I need to be free? Why must I experience freedom? Why is is accepting just a certain sort of, you know, basic level of bondage that I can live with, why is that not an option? Why is it not okay to be okay with a certain degree of slavery or with whatever brokenness or addiction you've just decided you're going to live with because you haven't ever been able to break free? So that's what we do. We settle into it, right? You absolutely must get free. Friends, we absolutely must get free from the bondage that overshadows us, and here's the reason why. There are others... (laughs) There are others. There are children who need their parents to be free. There are grandchildren who need their grandparents to be free. There are neighbors and longtime friends whose freedom is linked to yours. They need you to have an authentic experience of I overcame this by the power, of the, 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 uh, the power of the risen Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is actually still at work in my life. I can testify to it authentically, not triumphantly necessarily, but like say, I can show you. I can help you. Why do you need to be free? Because there are others. There are people you haven't even met yet. There are, there are children in slavery or on the other side of the world whose freedom is, you might even be able to say, literally dependent on your getting free so that you can engage in the broader process of freeing people and that they can get free. I want to point out just one simple detail that's barely mentioned in the Exodus story. Israel's, the Exodus story is the story of Israel stepping out of bondage and into freedom. This is in Exodus chapter 12. The key insight is in verse 38. I'm going to read a little bit coming up to this so we have some context. But we're going to land on Exodus 12, 38. Here's where this happens in the story. The ten plagues sent by God on Egypt to convince him to let the slaves, the Hebrew people, uh, go. They have just wrapped up with a tenth plague. The tenth plague has finally broken the Pharaoh. He's lost his own son. And so now finally he's like, okay, you, you guys can go. This is verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks, your herds as you've said, and go. And also bless me. Which some, some say is, is him saying, make this stop. Right? If, if you're leaving makes it stop, great. If not, please tell your God to make it stop. Bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough, the the people is the Israelites, they took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them whatever they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, plus women and children. And here's the key, verse 38. Many other people also went up with them. Many other people also went up. The Hebrew there is two words, mixed multitude. A mixed multitude also went up. The word mixed, is a, it's a weaving word. It, it, it's a word that talks about bringing many threads of many colors together to make one beautiful unified garment. And it's a multitude. One translation has it, a mixed crowd also went up with them. Another translation, a rabble of non-Israelites also went up with them. Another, a crowd of mixed ancestry went up with them. Another, a large crowd of every kind. And a final um, translation, a large company of others. Israel was set free, but as the descendants of Jacob whose name is changed to Israel. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. His descendants are the people of Israel. So as the people of Israel walk away from bondage, walk into freedom, hundreds of thousands of others also go with them. One source estimates that the whole group, of the whole group of people leaving Egypt, 75% are Israelites and 25% is a mixed multitude of other people who simply wanted to get free. All right. So in Exodus 12, we see Israel stepping out of bondage, stepping into freedom. But we also see, and this is important, that what will, from this point forward, be known as Israel is a mixed crowd. From here forward, they're a mixed crowd. It includes people of other races, like slaves brought to Egypt through its other conquests. It includes people, um, maybe even Egyptians, who have over the last couple weeks come to the realization that the God of the Israelites is actually the one true God and they'd like to worship him, if you don't mind, please. So we'd come on. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? There's an Egyptian coming with you, he used to be like, he used to own you and now he's in your community, it certainly included opportunists, tag-alongs, whose motives were far far from purely good, who were probably selfish, who simply saw this as a chance for a new life, or maybe just saw it as a chance for plunder, and decided to take advantage of it. Mixed can be messy. Anybody know that? Mixed can be messy. One of the major conversations happening in the American Christian church right now has been about the messiness of trying to navigate the variety of opinions and perspectives in the church about some old things like race and politics. Also some new things like gathering publicly or wearing masks It used to be relatively simple. The last year, it's become relatively more complicated. There's way more issues and there's way more perspectives. Mixed is really messy. The picture that we're given of a freshly freed Israel is the picture of a variety of perspectives, a a range of political opinions, all kinds of different races and cultures and priorities. They're all moving in the same direction. They're very different, but they're moving together. That's the picture we're given of the freshly freed Israel. Same is simple, isn't it? Same is simple. That's why it's easy to have some people over for dinner because you think the same. Mixed is messy, but mixed can also be beautiful. That's why a tapestry of many colors is just so beautiful. Now the reason that this detail, friends, in Exodus 12:38 is more than just a, a, a little curiosity. Is because it gestures toward a greater biblical theme that begins hundreds of years before Exodus in the call of Abraham, where God says, I will bless you to be a blessing, way back in Genesis 12. And then this same theme reaches its crescendo at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter seven, when the disciple John sees in this vision a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb and crying out in a loud voice. Friends, this is the theme that is the most famous statement of the Apostle John, for God so loved the world, right? It's the same theme. And what we discover is that God's purpose in choosing a people, Israel, and setting them apart was not ever to exclude others. It was, in fact, to show the rest of the world what it was like to be invited to follow God, and then to invite them to follow God along with them. Exodus is the story of the freeing of Israel, but this freedom was always meant for more than just Israel. By freeing Israel, God desires to free the the world. And if we carry that truth all the way to its conclusion, we arrive here. By freeing you, God desires to free your world. It's, it's, It's bigger, it's massive and it's specific, but by, by freeing you, God is going to, um, his, it doesn't end there, right? His desire is to free your children and to free your grandchildren and probably even to free people that you haven't met yet to free your friends and to free your neighbors. Remember, Exodus is the prequel to Easter. And what's so powerful to me, and I think, I think this is so critical to see, is not just that this mixed multitude leaves Egypt with Israel, but that this mixed multitude in leaving Egypt becomes part of Israel. You see that? And this now mixed group is the group to which the Ten Commandments are given as the way of life, This mixed group is the group which will be led by God through the desert, which will be provided for manna from heaven, water from a rock. All of them together, they're all together. Baked right into the first salvation story in the Bible, which is the Exodus, is this fascinating, somewhat surprising detail that God wants to save not just Israel. He wants to save the whole world. Yes, Israel is distinct. But others are invited to join with Israel and join in that distinction. Once that mixed multitude embraces the mark of distinction of the Israelites, which is circumcision, it doesn't matter what race they're from. It doesn't matter if they were slaves in Egypt or slave owners in Egypt. It doesn't matter what their background is. They're part of Israel. They're part of the people of God. They're children of Abraham. This is this is really crazy. This is radical, and it foreshadows the bigger story that is to come. And that's friends. That's why your freedom is so important too, because your freedom is is tied to the freedom of others. Of others. This is why you must get free. This is why I must get free. Two more quick thoughts, okay? One about danger, and one about beauty. There's an unfortunate theme in much of the commentary on this passage, especially the modern commentary about this passage, about the danger of a mixed multitude, the danger of having all these other people kind of hastily thrown in with Israel right before they escape Egypt, and how the messiness of this mixed crowd almost certainly led to some of Israel's most famous failures their lax devotion, their flirting with other gods, their frequent rebellion against God. And as I read some of these well-respected theologians, I found myself wondering, are you saying that it's a bad thing that this mixed multitude joined with Israel? Are you saying that the challenges of people from different backgrounds and varying perspectives outweigh the benefits of building a community of a mixed multitude In the Exodus, besides Israel, hundreds of thousands of other people get free. Hundreds of thousands of others who had no ancestral link to Abraham become children of Abraham. They become worshipers of the one true God. And the kind of mindset, friends, listen, the kind of mindset that looks at the mixed multitude of others who are joining Israel as a primarily dangerous thing is the same way of thinking that leads us to say things like, I'm just going to look out for myself. I'm just going to take care of my safety, my issues, my comfort, my future. Because it's too dangerous to involve all these others. It's too uncomfortable to involve all these others. It's the tragic error of modern Christianity that, frankly, is obsessed with individualism and sees others as too different, too dangerous, not important enough to really matter. The whole reason God sets Israel free is so that the whole world will know that the God of Israel is the God who sets people free. That's the whole reason. And yet the irony, the irony is so thick, the irony of the it's too dangerous or it's too complicated to include others way of thinking is that at the end of the day, not only does it hurt others, but it hurts you, it hurts you, it hurts me, it hurts us, ourselves. If get Here's how. If getting free from the addiction is only about you, it's not a big enough motivator. It won't make it happen. If other words, if you yourself are your only reason to get free from porn or to get free from fear or to get free from anxiety or free from bitterness, that's not a good enough reason in this sense. I don't see it carrying the motivational freight necessary to lead you to do the hard work to actually getting free. You are not a good enough reason for you. That's just based on 20 years of pastoral experience. But if your reason is your son's friends, you're going to get free, okay? If your reason is your daughter's you will do the hard work and you will get free. If your reason is those around you, your family, your friends, children trapped in slavery on the other side of the world or maybe right here in our town, that's what motivates real change. You can learn how to get free and you should, but if your only reason, if your only why for getting free is yourself because it's just too dangerous, it's just too uncomfortable to include others, despite what culture is telling you, which is that it's all about you, I, don't think, I just don't think that's a strong enough reason. I don't think at the end of the day that moves the needle. I don't think you alone are a good enough reason for you to get free. I think you need a bigger and better, broader, more frankly, a more godly reason. Why do you need to get free? Because of others. That's why you need to get free. Because you're part of a mixed multitude that is also searching for real freedom. And that sounds dangerous. It might. It's certainly messy. But I think God would call it beautiful. I think God would call it beautiful. This theme is all throughout the Bible. And it's just put on display um, right after the resurrection in the writings of the early church. Let me just read you a couple examples as I wrap up. Paul says this to the Ephesian church, Jesus is our peace. Jesus has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. They don't like each other. He says this to the church in Galatia, So in Jesus Christ, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There is not male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. You're heirs according to the promise. And then finally, John writes this in the Revelation. We've We've looked at it already. We've mentioned it. This vision of heaven, this this picture of a mixed multitude, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, all singing in one voice, all singing the song of praise of Jesus together. Is the mixed multitude dangerous? Is it uncomfortable? Maybe. Is it difficult? Yes. But can you imagine how beautiful it could be? Can you imagine how beautiful Friends, I'm compelled by the possibility and the power of a mixed multitude singing one song, all praising Jesus together. I'm compelled by that. I'm compelled by the magnitude of God's plan, which has always been this huge, all of creation, God so loves the whole world plan. A plan that is so big, it includes the restoration of all things, including you. And the restoration of your freedom. And not just yours but the freedom of others. Friends, that's, that's I, I believe that's the biblical why. I think that's why we need to be free. And I think that's the reason that at the end of the day is gonna motivate us to repent, to seek help, to do the hard work, to embrace the way of life. If I go down, I go down. But if my boys go down, it's not an option for me, okay? I got to get free.